When you receive an invitation, it doesn't matter who it's from, what it's to, or what it's all about, there is always a certain calculus, a little algorithm that we all run through when we get an invitation. I think the first knee-jerk factor that we consider and really don't even think about is, do I want to go? That, that's, I mean, let's be honest. Self-interest is usually our first step unless we're really, really intentional about something. We think, do we want to go? But then we step down and in no particular order, we'll think, okay, well, who's the invitation from? Who else might be there? Are they serving food? What kind of food are they serving? What's the attire going to be? Do I get to go casual or do I need to dress to impress? What, what's, what's the vibe of the event that we are being invited to? And most of these calculations happen below the level of conscious thought. They just happen in a nanosecond anytime you receive or I receive an invitation. The Christian faith, the Christian religion or belief system, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is at its most basic level an invitation to live a better story. The Christian life is an invitation to live a better story. It's, it's wrapped up in the why Jesus, the Son of God, left heaven, took on human form and came and walked and talked here on earth, why he taught and he preached, why he called, he comforted, he confronted, he healed, he served, all so we would understand this incredible invitation that would allow us direct access and relationship with the God who created us. This relationship that would be facilitated by the forgiveness of our sins. This relationship that would open us up to the possibility of actually living a better story. And every page of the Bible points toward this invitation of God to you, to me, to live a better story. Last week, we kicked off this teaching series that is doing a deep dive on the life of Daniel. And in addition to Daniel, there are his close friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you weren't here last week or you haven't heard that message, I want to encourage you to listen to it because it is really, really important for where we are going throughout this series. What we're doing in this series is both consequential and sequential. It's consequential because what God is trying to do through this study, through this time that we're investing every single weekend is to allow us to begin to make sense of a messy world. Does anybody want to argue that our world is at least a little bit messy? I think that's something we can all agree on. I think we have a hundred percent consensus. Is, raise your hand if you think the world is at least a little bit messy. I mean, that's all of it. If, if you don't think the world is messy, you ain't paying attention. It's a messy world that we live in. But as we study the life of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have the opportunity through their experience, through the biblical historical record of their lives in Babylonian captivity, to learn how to make sense of a messy world, how to, how to begin to think and therefore live 
biblically. Because when we think biblically, we begin to think clearly and accurately. And when we think clearly and accurately, we actually have some hope. We, we actually know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as long as that is true, and, and by the way, forever, in the words of one great theologian, that's a mighty long time. That's how long he will be the same. And so it helps us to navigate a messy world. So it is really, really important. It's, it's weighty. It's consequential what we're doing. But it is also sequential because we are tracing the arc of the narrative of these four lives in Babylonian captivity. You'll remember, if you were here last week, we established kind of the, the baseline that Daniel was part of a group that was living in Babylonian captivity, exiled from their hometown of Jerusalem, 1,600 miles away. This would have been around 605, 606 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful person on the planet at that time, ruler of the Babylonian Empire, besieged Jerusalem. Jerusalem falls, and he carts off a group of exiles back to Babylon. Well, there is a remnant who remained in Jerusalem. And within this remnant is a guy that is very, very famous in biblical circles. His name was Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah was in Jerusalem while Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in Babylon. And God, in his infinite grace and love, did something for the exiles through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Here's what we need to remember. We need to keep in mind, why were they in exile? It was because God was using that experience to call them back to faithfulness, to call them back into the covenant relationship that he had specifically chosen Israel for. Israel had a long and checkered past in their relationship with God, kind of like I do, kind of like some of us do in that they were chosen by God. If you'll remember, he, he said to Abram, who became Abraham and his wife Sarah, that I will make of you a great nation through your son Isaac. And it was from that called out holy family that God raised up a called out holy nation that became Israel. And Israel, as long as they lived within the context of the covenant, they enjoyed all of the blessings, all of the benefits of God's People. They enjoyed his presence. They enjoyed his power. They enjoyed his peace. They enjoyed his protection. They enjoyed his prosperity. All of it was theirs for the taking. But see if this doesn't sound familiar. As long as things were going really, really well, Israel had a habit, a tendency to sometimes get a little lax and loose with the law. You know what I'm talking about? Where like everything's cool. We don't have to really follow all of the laws, do we? Anybody ever, don't raise your hand, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, this Babylonian captivity was God's way of allowing them to experience consequences for a long, long season of rebellion. But even in that, God was allowing that captivity to be used in a redemptive manner. He was redeeming even their rebellion to call them back to faithfulness, calling them back 
to relationship. And Jeremiah sends this letter, this word from God from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to read this passage of Scripture, and when we get to the highlighted words, I want you to read it out loud like you mean it. Like, like this is the 11 o'clock service. God's favorite people come to this service. That's how we read it, all right? The Bible says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. He says, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. See, there's the arranged marriage thing again. I, I'm a fan of that. I think that's a great idea. I can't get anybody to go along with me in 2021, but 23 either. Um, <laughs> find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. Here we go. Read it with me. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Read it out loud. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. God is saying, listen, yes, you're in exile, but I don't want you to be watching the clock until you get back home to Israel. I want you, even in exile, even in the middle of my discipline, to flourish, to thrive, to show these Babylonians what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with me. I want you to show them what it looks like to live a better story. This is the call of God on his people. This is the call on our lives, to live a better story. Now we can go back to Daniel. You remember last week I told you, I gave you the punchline to the whole series in the first week. Daniel chapter one, verse eight Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been impressed into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar. They are to be trained and educated in the ways of the court for the king. They are to be fed at the king's table. But Daniel raises his hand. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Read it out. Read the highlighted words out loud. It says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Another way that you could say that is Daniel resolved to live a better story. Da Daniel decided that he was going to adhere to, he was going to continue to observe the dietary laws that God had given to Moses. Now, God had given these to Israel to, to set them apart, to show that they were different and called out from their neighboring tribes and countries around them. And obviously because of Christ, we are no longer bound by those same laws, but every relationship has some rules. Every relationship has some, some standards that have to be observed for the relationship to flourish and to thrive and to grow and to be healthy. And there are absolutely rules. There are commands that God gives us for our relationship with him that when we follow them, that relationship is united. We are strong in him. We are strong together. We are always helped. But again, we have to choose like Daniel to not defile ourselves. We have to choose. Remember, we talked about the word defile. Defile just means that it corrupts something that's pure. 
God has given you a soul. You were created in the image of God. And yet when we choose sin over not sin, we are defiling that image of God. We're, we're actually misrepresenting the image of God that we're created to carry out into the world. So we have a choice to make every single day with every word that comes out of our mouths. I'll give you an example. This is completely hypothetical. Let's say that your pastor was driving down the road in his truck. And let's just say hypothetically that somebody cut me off in traffic. And let's just say hypothetically that I would say, idiot. Again, hypothetical. If that were to ever happen, hypothetically, that would be defiling myself. That would be defiling the image of God that I was created to carry. That would be defiling the personality and the character of God that we are supposed to represent in this world. That's what Daniel was choosing not to do. That's the choice we have every single day. If I were to choose, let's say, to respond to my wife, Julie, with like a, a harsh tone or rage, first of all, that is really stupid on my part. But second of all, it is defiling. And this really helps me to understand God's perspective on sin, or I should say, what is the actual reality of sin. Sin always contributes to our own brokenness. When I choose sin, you sin, whatever the sin might be, we are contributing to our own brokenness. I think that's why God hates sin. He hates it. I know people say, well, you should never use the word hate. It's okay in this context. Say hate. 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 God hates sin because it misrepresents him and it corrupts. It defiles the crowning achievement of his creation, you and me. And so Daniel chose to not do that. He, he resolved. He put a stake in the ground and he said, I won't do it. And he sought permission. Isn't that interesting? He resolved. He wasn't going to do it, but he sought permission. He played within the power structure that he was under at the time. I just thought that was an interesting little observation about our boy Daniel. But look at how the story continues, Daniel 1, 15 through 17. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and the wine provided for the others. Read these highlighted words with me. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. God has always been about this, this supernatural, symbiotic relationship between our work and his work. It's what he said through the prophet Jeremiah. I want you to pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray for it, but I also want you to work for it. I want you literally and biologically, I want you to put down roots, have children, have grandchildren, raise generations of difference makers, inviting people into this better story that I've created them for. 
And here, you see this beginning to play out through Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God's work and their work. They're, God has wired up this world. He's wired up you and me to work according to some very specific principles that when we put them into practice, that's where the good stuff is. When we begin to practice the principles of God, we begin to see the presence of God more clearly. We begin to see the peace of God more frequently. We begin to see the power of God more prolifically. And all of these things happen through principle and practice. Principle and practice. Practice and principle over and over and over and over again. Keep in mind, Daniel refused to defile himself. The principle here is this. Manage your appetites and God magnifies your aptitudes. Manage your appetites and God magnifies your aptitudes. Daniel said, I'm going to manage my appetites. I bet, I bet, don't you know the king's table? It, it was like Ruth's Chris meets Fix Southern Kitchen. You've got steak and homemade biscuits. It was unbelievable. And Daniel said, that, that's, that's not for me. He was managing his appetite. And because he managed his appetite, God magnified their aptitudes. He gave them an unusual aptitude for learning and understanding literature and wisdom. A lot of times, we lack the wisdom of God because we don't manage our, our appetites. Appetites are a funny thing. They're, they're a God-given thing. Appetite for food, an appetite for relationship and connectedness with other people that matters. Our sex drive is an appetite that God's created us as sexual beings. But all of these appetites can also be corrupted and defiled to work against us, to bring dishonor to God, to, to not glorify him and not be good for us. But when we exercise the free will that God has created us with and we manage our appetites, God begins to magnify the aptitudes. We, we start to see things happening that we were like, whoa, I know I'm not that good. I, I know I'm not that smart. But look at what God is doing. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego began to see this, and, and it continues. Look at verses 19 and 20. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they're Hebrew names. So they entered the royal service. Watch this. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, read the highlighted words with me, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. 10 times more capable. Don't hydroplane past this. You have four young men, more than likely still in their teens, and here the most powerful person on the planet, Nebuchadnezzar, is seeking their counsel and their wisdom. And when he does, he finds them 10 times more capable than anybody else he's got on the payroll. 
that is a staggering reality. Here's the principle in the practice. Expand your competence, and God expands your influence. You expand your competence. God expands your influence. It means, Christ follower, get really good at something. Excel in something that makes people's lives better. Bring value to your employer. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's in athletics. Maybe it's in singing or choir. I don't know what it is, but expand your competence. Work and develop skills. One of my favorite books I read a few years ago, it's entitled, So Good They Can't Ignore You, Why Skills Trump Passion in Finding Work You Love. It's a fascinating read that essentially takes the the old adage, follow your passions, and says, throw that away. Follow your passions is terrible, terrible advice. Better advice is get good at something. If you get good at something, you will find something you're passionate about. Here's the thing about passions. Passions lie. Skills last. If you've got skills that that will help somebody, if you follow your passions, you will end up in a ditch relationally, financially, spiritually. Follow your passions in the love of the Lord. That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life. Tell your neighbor, don't follow your passions. Now, don't do something you're miserable at, but if you get good at something, you're not going to be miserable. We, there's something about competence that breeds confidence. I remember when our son Joe was a senior in high school, he and two of his friends decided they were going to audition for the school musical. And that year the school was doing Shrek, the musical. And they decided amongst themselves, they'd been in choir all the way through together, and they decided, you know what? Cole, Cole's going to be Shrek. Ryan will be King Farquaad, the comedic relief. And Joe said, I'll be donkey. You know, as a father, nothing makes you prouder than your son saying, I'm going to be donkey. But I knew he would be great at it. So they had the auditions. They did the callbacks, more auditions, deliberations. Boom. The day finally comes when they post who's going to play what role. Julie and I, I think we're in a car together, and Joe called us. And I could hear in his voice that he was kind of down. He goes, hey, they posted the roles for Shrek. Julie and I kind of looked at each other. We weren't on FaceTime, fortunately. Like, "Uh uh-oh, this doesn't sound good. He goes, I didn't get donkey. Now, normally that would be a good thing. But in this particular context, it wasn't. Julie immediately said, oh, Joe, I'm so sorry. What what role are you going to be playing? He goes, I'm Shrek. (laughs) Julie and I went. I said, Joe, that's great, man. That's phenomenal. He worked his head off. Finally, opening night comes. The the first number in Shrek is this huge, big singing number, high, high notes. And and Joe comes out, and he's in full Shrek regalia, the ogre, you know, green face, prosthetic nose, platform boots, and he's walking around the stage singing. He crushed it. 
hit every single note, didn't miss a note. You and I were like, whose kid is that? It was unbelievable. And we were just like, Joe, that was amazing. And after about two or three days of us telling him just how, just how incredible it was, I, I realized Joe was starting to pick up on a little, little undercurrent of surprise in our voices. And I felt, I felt bad about that. And I said, Joe, I want you to know, it's not that we didn't think you, it wasn't that we thought you couldn't do it. We just, we never heard you hit those notes. Joe said, Dad, I never heard me hit those notes. See, that's just one, he expanded his competence and he got the lead. You expand your competence in something and God will use your influence in a way that you can't even imagine. These teenage slaves now have the ear of the most powerful person on the planet. And we're just getting started with the story. But that's what God does. But there's one more principle in practice. And for this, I want to go back to Jeremiah's letter to the Babylonian exiles. Jeremiah 29, verses 8 and 9. He said, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams. Read the highlighted words with me out loud. Because they are telling you lies in my name, I have not sent them. Principle and practice. Filter your thoughts and God fixes your thoughts. Filter your thoughts and God fixes your thoughts. Isn't it amazing what can happen between your ears? I mean, we, there's, let's just be honest. There is some crazy stuff that can happen in here, isn't there? We can have some crazy thoughts. I mean, just whack-a-doodle-doo. It happens to all of us. But that doesn't mean that we have to entertain those thoughts. It doesn't mean that we have to put out a full-course meal, give them a chaise lounger to hang out in. We filter our thoughts. This is what Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. This is from God. Divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And read it with me. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So every thought that comes into my little head, I take it captive to Christ. I say, hey, Jesus, what do you want to do with this one? There are a lot of things that happen up here that Jesus goes, you need to get rid of that. But there are other ones that he says, I want you to feed that one. I, I, want, you to, I want you to lean into that thought, that leading that I have given you. I, take every thought captive to Christ. Filter every thought through the skein, the saying of Scripture. The Word of God. This is why truth matters. Here's what happens. For example, the Bible says Jesus is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. Beautiful. Love it. Great principle. Here's the practice. We got a presidential election coming up. I look around. I see some interesting people. 
But then I look at the people at the top of each ticket, and I am despondent. I'm like, really? These two? These two are the best we got? You must be out your mind. That's, that's my natural self. But then I remember, Jesus is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is nothing that has ever happened in the history of the world that has been outside the scope of his power and authority to use for his good. And as long as he is the king and my king, I'm going I'm to get involved. I'm going to vote my principles. I'm going to vote my values. I'm going to vote my beliefs. But it's not going to change my eternity. Who occupies the White House for the next four years? It's a big deal, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I'm going to take that thought captive to Christ. I'm going to be like, you know what? There's no way these two are the best we can choose from. I'm so sick and tired of the lesser of two evil votes. Could we please do something to elevate somebody above both of them? Please. But then I remember, we know who wins, not the election, eternity, eternity. How do we know that? We know that from God's word. This is why truth matters so profoundly. If, if we don't believe in truth as a, as a propositional reality, then we are, we are going to get anxious and stressed and mean and hateful and put, and so angst-ridden that we can't even see straight. But when we remember the truth of Scripture, when we cling to the Word of God, when we cling to the Son of God, who rose from the dead to offer us a better story to live? Let's go. Let, let's go. You want to dance? I'll dance. But let's go. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then, read it out loud. Then the God of peace will be with you. Then the God of peace will be with you. Filter your thoughts. Then God fixes your thoughts. Fix your minds on what is true and noble, excellent, worthy of praise. In John chapter 14, Jesus is approaching the cross. And he's approaching the cross primarily thinking about his closest followers, his disciples. He's preparing them for what they're about to witness, what they're about to experience he knows what he's about to experience. He knows the physical 
anguish, the literally excruciating pain, physically, but also spiritually and relationally that he is about to endure on his way to the resurrection. And this is what he says to his followers. It's, it's, it's staggering. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Read it out loud. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I gotta tell you, if I knew I was going to the cross, <laughs> I love you, but I'm not worried about you. But this is Jesus. He says, I'm here to give you peace. Not like the world gives. I'm not talking about peace because you put another zero in the bank or closed another deal or made the team. I'm talking about the peace that passes all understanding. That's the peace he wants to give you. That, that's the peace that he died and was resurrected to facilitate in your life and in my life. And, and I, I think it's important. He says, I, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Don't get mad at the world for being the world. You know, if, if a four-year-old child looks at you and stomps her feet and says, I hate you, you just go, no, you don't. I buy your food. You don't hate me. You, you don't get bent out of shape about that. The, the world is the world. And Jesus Christ calls you and me to live a better story to help extend his invitation to them to live a better story. We demolish strongholds and arguments. We do not demolish people. We do not cancel people. We demolish arguments. You have the right. I have the right to live whatever story you want to live. But don't kid yourself, not all stories are created equal. Not all stories end the same. Jesus invites you, come, come live a better story. Come live the best story you can even imagine. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. In this moment, if you've never RSVP'd that invitation, you've never personally and definitively said, Jesus, I'm coming. I, I accept your invitation to live a better story. Then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. Just from your heart to God, silently say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. And so I confess my sin to you, all of it, holding nothing back in order to receive, in order to claim your forgiveness, your grace, and your truth. Jesus, from this moment, I will follow you. Give me the grace. Give me the courage 
to follow, to be leadable by you. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for another moment. If that was your prayer, then that's, that's your RSVP. This is the biggest moment of your life, and as a church, we're excited for you. We want to help with the moments that follow. We have a gift for you. It's just a, it's just a new believer's packet. It's a Bible. It's got a reading plan and some, some questions that are answered. When we dismiss in just a moment, on your way out, you'll see a place in the lobby called The Hub. You can take that QR card that's in the seat back in front of you and just hand it to somebody there, and they would be glad to give you that. But as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just another moment, I want to ask you, if that was your prayer, would you also just raise your hand real quickly? Just, just raise your hand and put it up high over your head as a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made and know that we celebrate that with you. And our family tradition around here is that you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.